This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash freelancer show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the how did you hear about a section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 197 of The Freelancer Show. I'm Ruben Lerner, and this week I'm joined by Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And we are going to talk about training. Awesome. I'm excited. I think regular listeners know that you are a trainer, right? Is that what you would say? I train? I, I am a learner and a trainer. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> I have a secret... Secret, secret, shameful background as a trainer. That's actually how I got into the world of technology. My <laughs> In college, I majored in political science and uh, loved my political science degree. But as soon as I got out of college in 1996, I went straight into the world of technology because I had always really been kind of a geek, always interested in uh, computers, computer software. And so my first job out of college was working for an outfit called New Horizons Computer Learning Center. Oh, I, I've heard of them. Yeah. I don't even know if they're still around. I don't know if they're still around, but I remember hearing the name. I don't know what they actually did. Well, during the first dot-com boom, they were a franchise computer training outfit. So they did primarily two things. You could go there and you needed to learn how to use Microsoft Excel. You could take a day-long class on Microsoft Excel. And I mean, that's not the only thing, but they, they did training around desktop software. And then when Microsoft and Novell and I think that's it, released their certification programs, they started doing a training around that. So if you wanted to become a Microsoft certified systems engineer 
or basically learn how to set up Windows NT server and that kind of thing, or set up a Novell server, you could take a week-long class or a three-day class for a lot more money and learn how to do that and then get certified. And remember, this was the first dot-com boom, double your salary. <laughs> you could literally, right. in a lot of cases, you know, get certified. And if you were kind of a sysadmin and had been uncertified, the certification would either allow you to get a job at a different place at a much higher salary or sort of earn you a raise. So it was lucrative. It was hot. And uh, that's how I sort of got into, you know, the kind of work I do now, which is not training, but has sort of a technical component to it. So we are both trainers. And I thought, why not talk about training? Yeah. No, I look, I, I, I mean, I guess I've, I've told the story to some degree here in the show and elsewhere, but I've obviously been doing software development for many years. I graduated with a degree in computer science. And I worked for big companies. I worked for HP and I worked for Time Warner. When I came to Israel, I started my consulting outfits. That was 20 years ago already, 21 years ago. And basically, people started asking me, well, it's nice that you can do this development for us, but we've got a new... This started with Checkpoint, actually. I think they were the first company to say it to me. They said, we've got a whole bunch of new programmers coming in, and they need to know Perl. Mm -hmm. And you know Perl. So can you just like put together a course for them? And the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> so <laughs> even though I had no idea what I was doing, I mean, I'd always sort of given lectures and helped out and done things, especially with my work at Time Warner. Uh, I like did a lot of demos for people. But putting together an actual course, this was new to me. Yeah. And I'm sure looking back, if I were to look at what I did, I would be just, you know, my skin would crawl. And, and I, I enjoyed it. And I always saw it as doing like a mix of things. And it was really just a few years ago, thanks in no small part to you and your influence and us giving advice about this on the show that you really should specialize. Mm -hmm. I, I kept saying to myself, I love the training. It's highly in demand. It's way more relaxing with fewer pitfalls than doing development projects for people. And I can build a pipeline months in advance. Why the heck am I not just like doing this? Why am I fighting people on this? And so it's probably been a good, let's say year and a half at least mm -hmm. that I've been doing mostly training now like 80%. And I would guess it was probably in October that I taught the last course for this training company through which I've been going for the last few years. So like, I guess about like six years ago, I went to a training company here in Israel and I said, I'd like you to market my trainings for me mm -hmm. um, instead of me doing it myself. And so I worked with them and I basically decided I could double my income. I could get more freedom and they really weren't contributing that much. Mm -hmm. So it was in October that I finally broke off with them after mm -hmm. months of knowing this in advance. And since then I've been on my own and things are going like gangbusters. It's really, it's really astonishing. And and now I'm moving into sort of helping other people try to do training and teach them what's involved because I, I feel like I've gotten such a great deal out of this. Other people should be able to, uh, you know, enjoy it too. That's awesome. So Checkpoint, is that the firewall software company? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I knew something about networks and I was sure, I think when I first went there that I was going to be working with their developers. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the high-level languages, you know, what people call scripting languages, so yeah. it was then Perl and now a lot of Python, yes, they're used in development, but Israeli companies and big enterprise companies use it a ton in testing. Oh. So I was always working with a Checkpoint QA department. Mm -hmm. And so QA departments tend to be, again, this might be just Israel, but might be elsewhere. They tend to be like the entry-level positions in a lot of high-tech companies. Mm. So yeah, you could get, if you have a, a fancy CS degree, you can go work as a developer. But mm -hmm. if you have a not so fancy CS degree, or if you've just done one of those New Horizons types courses, no, if you've just done like some <laughs> sort of course somewhere and you sort of kind of know about programming, but don't really know a lot, then you'll often come in as a QA person, work there for a handful of years, 
and then probably move up to do development. Yeah. But they do programming and they need to know about technology and they need to use a language in which to do it. Got it. Yeah. Help desk work is kind of one of those other screen out the newbies kind of <laughs> jobs here, right. here in the States. Right. Or well, at least it was back when I was getting into this. So I have another question about your background before we kind of move into the, the body of this. So you have a PhD of some sort and that has something to do with education or learning theory? Yeah. So the, the story there is, so I, I started consulting in 95, 96 mm -hmm. and, you know, things were going well and I was happy mostly, but I was sort of getting frustrated. I mean, the, the way software projects work is someone told me this at some point, I think it's true. They never end well. They never <laughs> end with everyone saying, yes, we did this project. We are all happy. And you know what? Let's live happily ever after. But like, there's no more work. It's usually we're out of budget. We've gone out of business. Boy, we really didn't like what you did. We've hired someone instead of you. Uh, you missed the deadline again. Like, like whatever it was. And at a certain point, I, I sort of felt like even if I was working on interesting projects and I was working with cool people and they were paying me, right? I was able to pay the mortgage all the all the time or most of the time, which mm -hmm. is nice. Mm -hmm. I, I was missing some satisfaction. And I spoke to a friend of mine, you know, older friend of mine who's a professor, and his advice was go get a PhD. He was like, you are going to learn so much. You're going to meet such interesting people. It'll give you a break from consulting. Mm -hmm. Now, he was both very right and very wrong. He was very right in that I learned a ton. I opened my head and my mind to all sorts of new ideas. It probably influenced, I'll tell you in a moment, like the direction of my work. At the same time, this was 11 years of like incredible stress, oh, financial, wow. emotional, personal, uh, that I never anticipated. And of course, in order to pay the bills during that time, I was consulting anyway on the sly without telling my advisor. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I thought about doing a PhD in computer science, and that just did not excite me at all. Right. Like, let's make databases faster. Let's figure out a new programming language. Nowadays, maybe I'd be more interested. Mm -hmm. And my wife said to me, you've always been interested in education. You've taught at summer camps. You like teaching, like doing lecturing. Why not look for a combination of technology and education? And so I actually talked to friends of mine at the MIT Media Lab who do that sort of stuff. And I applied there. I did not get in. Uh -huh. And that was the only place I applied. Then the next year, I tried there and a few more places. And I again did not get into the Media Lab. And by the way, I'm so, so happy I didn't because they would have destroyed me. I, the work, <laughs> no, the, the work they expect, they expect you to really, really, really do only research. Uh -huh. And Northwestern, they just sort of say that. So I got into my, my group in Northwestern and I somehow managed to finish. And it's a combination of technology and education. So my advisor is a professor of computer science uh -huh. and a professor of what they call learning sciences. And I did a huge software project, a web development project that was a collaborative learning environment online. And it's definitely true that a lot of the principles from the coursework and from my thesis work, I, I'm finding now increasingly I can sort of pull out strands from that and use that either in thinking about how I want to teach or in helping other people think about how they want to teach. But to be clear, when you when you put together your first uh, humble course in, in Perl scripting, you did not have this background, right? Oh, oh no, <laughs> not at all. And nor did I have any particular background in teaching when I got employed to teach people. Did, did they provide you at No Horizons with a curriculum and a syllabus or were you did you have to, cre have to create that yourself? You know, New Horizons had their own sort of intellectual property in the form of courses that they developed, they had developed in-house and that was on the desktop training side of things. So there was definitely, you know, I don't know how you can apply the word curriculum to a one-day class, but I mean, there were, there was course <laughs> material and they did give me a little bit of training in how to manage a classroom of adult learners and that kind of thing. So that was great. On the Microsoft side of things, Microsoft has a whole department called Microsoft Learning, 
which I have always felt like is a uh, subsidiary of their marketing department, or at least of their <laughs> marketing budget, because it, it does have a marketing function in that, you know, the more people who know how to use their software correctly, the better theoretically it's going to do in the marketplace because there's a sort of an ecosystem of services, right? That's right. So they have that sort of whole product thing going on. Anyway, that courseware was supplied by Microsoft. And I later worked for a company that did some work for Microsoft Learning producing courseware. It was really interesting. That's kind of what got me into education-based content marketing in the first place. But here's why I wanted to ask that question. Training doesn't require any kind of special training, right? Or does right. it? I, I imagine some of our listeners, uh, now that we've hijacked the show, <laughs> at least for one episode from Chuck, uh, and don't have his moderating influence here, I imagine some of our listeners are saying, okay, if I wanted to do training, do I need to know anything before I start doing it? And I, I think we should riff on that for a while. So I do a ton of training for Cisco, and I, I love working with them. Cisco, you hear that? I love you. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm sure all of their employees listen to our show, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I met uh, when I was in Shanghai with the head of training there to see if it would work out to do some training. And it wouldn't for budget reasons mostly. But he said something which rang so true with me. He said, listen, most of my trainers are either really good programmers and bad, but they don't know how to teach, or really good teachers who don't know anything about programming. Uh-huh. And so I'm guessing that most people start in training in that first camp uh-huh. where – they know the technology and they have an inclination and a willingness to share and teach, but they don't know necessarily how to bridge that gap. Right. But that's okay because you're only going to learn the hard way in many ways. And you're going to learn through people responding and reacting to what you're teaching and then you you changing. So if you're willing to improve on that, then like I think you can totally pull it off. Yeah, I uh... – Again, you know, I majored in political science. I had no specialized training other than the one week of training I got from New Horizons in in how to manage a classroom. No specialized training in how to do this. And I, I felt like it was the same dynamic for me. I was enthusiastic about all forms of technology. And um, that enthusiasm was made me – gave me the confidence to feel like I could stand up in a room in front of 10, 15 people and teach them something. I, I didn't feel like, you know, my differentiator in that in that situation was some kind of superior teaching ability. It really was like, well, you know, I think this is cool. I want to help other people understand it. And maybe I can figure the rest out on the fly, which is kind of what I did. <laughs> you know, apologies to any of my students from back then who, you know, suffered through me kind of figuring out the best way to explain something. But that's one part of it is you, you feel like you don't know the best way to explain something until the first time you've had to teach it in a live situation. And you you get better after that. You realize, oh, that was clunky. That, that doesn't make sense. Uh, it is, a, in my experience, it's very iterative. It's like you, yes. the first time you go through a subject, it's not going to be your best effort, no matter how much you've prepared beforehand. I wonder if, if you see the same thing, Reuven, when oh. you're teaching. Absolutely. I, I tell people even, um, it probably takes me five to 10 times of teaching a course before I feel it's really smooth. Mm. Um, that I know sort of how to pace it. I know what exercises to give. I know um, even sometimes like what stories, what analogies to tell at yes. what time. Right. Um, I mean, just an example. So I taught this course in data science with Python probably just about a month ago. And it was good, but it wasn't fantastic. And the reviews reflected that. 
And to their credit, the company where I taught it wrote me back and said, wow, thanks for the great pilot course. We hope that it'll get better next time. Like they know, they know mm -hmm. that's how it works. And one of the nice things about having these long-term clients is they're willing to take risks. Now, of course, it has to get better next time, right? And I know there are things I have to improve on, but assuming they see sort of a positive trend and that people are more satisfied each time, they're willing to sort of hold their breath and, and, and help me out because in the, in the end, it's in everyone's interest. They get better courses and people learn more. And I then have something that I can sell to them more. Let me jump in here. Part of my secret agenda for having this conversation is hoping that I can, for those people who are maybe wavering, you know, they have something they feel like they could teach and they see that teaching is a potential line of additional revenue for their freelance business. I'm hoping we can kind of push them over the edge to try it. So you talked about the, the pilot course, the first, the first go around. Uh, do you feel like that also applies if you are not working for a company that's paying you, but you're selling your training directly to the students, you know, to the consumer, direct to consumer? You know, do you do anything different in that case? Because I know you've done a little bit of that too, right? Haven't you? Very little, very little. Okay. I'll tell you all, all the, so those are something called like open enrollment courses. Uh -huh. And the idea of an open enrollment course is, so, so typically what I do is I work with a company. Right. You know, company X needs a, they, they know that they have a bunch of people who need to know Python. That's like my, my intro Python course is probably a good 60% of what I teach. Right. Maybe you're, you're like a contract trainer to them. Right, right. And in fact, it's funny. On occasion, people will say to me, oh, do you work for our company and just fly around and do this training in different uh -huh, branches? Uh -huh. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I, I have my own business. Yeah. But they don't know because some of these companies are so big, they have no way of knowing that. Right. Um, I've done some open enrollment uh, training through this training company that I'd worked for. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, one of the things that pushed me over the edge and convinced me to go back on my own and market my own courses was – that I felt that they were making an enormous profit off of these open enrollment courses because they basically bring in about four times the revenue of uh, an on-site course. Mm -hmm. And they were paying me the same. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I went to them and complained. They said, well, you know, our building has enormous overhead. I was like, 90% <laughs> is really high. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'm really bad at finances and I'm really bad at all sorts of things, but I think I could do better than that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to keep that line for the next time someone complains about my prices. <laughs> <laughs> so I and, – and, and by the way, it was like that same week that someone said to me in that course, do you know how much we're paying for this course? And like I said, wait a second. They're paying a lot and I'm not getting paid a lot. Something is terribly wrong here. Mm -hmm. And so I've toyed with the idea of doing open enrollment on my own and I even started to look into like finding a location. But – then you have to go to market yourself to individuals. That's harder. Mm. What I have basically planned to do is at some point in the coming months, start to do a short online open enrollment courses. Like I'll do a, you know, a four hour, six hour, small slice of a topic and hope that people on my mailing list and, and elsewhere, like you, dear podcast listener, will sign up and come. But I, I don't have any experience trying to do that yet, although I know it's hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking of someone like Paul Jarvis who has his creative class. So it is a course, you know, it's it's structured like a course rather than it, it's not just a book that's been stuck online, right? It's a course. He sells it directly to, you know, to freelancers or, or whoever wants to pay him to take this class. And it's, you know, it's about running your freelance business as a as a creative professional. So I know there's a lot of people who are thinking about, oh, maybe I could do something like that. 
And how do I get past that hump of it being terrible at first <laughs> until I can yeah. work with live students and, and iterate until it's better? So is there some process you use for getting feedback from your students or is it really just you have to do it X number of times before you get better at it? I think it's a combination of things. So first of all, I used to sometimes give talks at like user group meetings and I definitely encourage people who are interested in training to go do that. And that gives you a few things. First of all, it gets your name known. Like it's good marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, oh, so-and-so is a real expert at technology X. Right. I saw them give a talk. And sometimes people come up to you if it's a really great talk and they'll say, hey, I work for a company and we could use some help. And, and so you can do marketing that way. A yeah. second thing is you get more comfortable speaking in front of people. And again, the timing, the pacing, the slides, live coding, that sort of stuff. Uh -huh. And the third thing is you then get to sort of try out the material. And so I've started doing that with my webinars. Like I do a webinar probably like once every month and a half, two uh -huh. months or so uh -huh. now. And almost always it's a topic that I'm thinking of teaching better and I figure, what better way to do it than to offer it for free? I'll get feedback. And even if I get zero feedback, which is often the case, I know myself how it went. And mm -hmm. I can feel, uh, I needed more examples on this. Or this was just a terrible example. Or, yeah. huh, what do you know? It actually did, it was actually okay. <laughs> I remember I was so proud when I came up with, uh, I used to teach a course on TCP IP. And I was so proud when I came up with the example of an IP address is like an apartment building. You know, it's got one address for the building. And then the uh, port number is like the apartment number within the apartment building. So proud of that uh, analogy. And you really do, as you sort of face the challenge of explaining something that's, you know, complex or difficult, you, you do sort of improvise on the job and come up with these, these things that become part of your teaching toolkit. Oh, oh, absolutely. Like, sometimes it'll happen with stories. Sometimes it'll happen with exercises. Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes I'll just have inspiration. I'll give an exercise, and it'll work really well. And I'll say, wow, I am using that with every one of my courses in the future, right? And sometimes, by the way, it'll it'll go terribly. Mm -hmm. I've even given people impossible tasks sometimes for exercises. That is not recommended. Wait, wait, and, you, you knew they were impossible? No, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Like, I'll say, I want everyone to try to do X and Y and Z. Uh -huh. And more common case is they'll say, but how do we do such and such? And I'll say, oh, right, we haven't talked about that yet. Right, that's bad. <laughs> but what's worse is, oh, right, that's not that's actually not possible with this technology. Uh -huh. um, so after people are beating their heads against the wall for 10 minutes. So I try to avoid that. <laughs> There's this whole you know discipline called instructional design that I think you know a lot more about now after your uh, PhD travails than you did before. Uh, do you feel like yeah. you need to be knowledgeable about instructional design to design effective training or just to teach a class well? You don't need to. Look, it's it's like everything else. Can you pick up programming on your own? Absolutely. And many, many people do it. And some of them are extraordinarily successful, right? Can So can you pick up the sort of instructional design teaching ideas on your own? Yeah. And some people are really great at it. You know, getting formal training basically is like a if it's done well – it's like a catalyst or a shortcut. Mm. It's basically using someone else's experience and travails and scars mm -hmm. and allowing you to leapfrog that on your own. So on that note, I, I want to know what you've learned. We can take turns. I'll share what I've learned also from... That's great. I have probably spent, not full-time, but five to seven years um, with a significant amount of time each month in front of a class. So... I've got some experience to share there, and I bet you do too. 
So, I mean, what what have you learned that are sort of best practices about, you know, about doing training? Uh, how do you present the content? How do, What order do you go in? Do you start with concepts first and then go to details or the other way around? You know, how, how do you do it? I never thought of that. I'll have to think, I'll, that last question is a really good one. I'll, I'll think about it a little bit. So first of all, I always try to find like a hook. And uh-huh. for me, hooks are often stories. Oh. Like come up with a, use a story from real life, like your apartment analogy, uh-huh. right? And sometimes it'll be a joke and sometimes it'll be a story. Um, and sometimes it'll be something just to sort of get them into the idea and move. Like what problem are we trying to solve? What is the issue here? Mm. And by leading them that way, they understand not just, oh, this is another aspect of the technology, but this is an aspect that is actually useful in the following way. And it fits into my existing comprehension of things. It's not totally foreign. So one one of my one of my favorite examples, and, and the, like the farther it is from technology, I think the better because then ah. they can relate to it. Okay. So uh, like one one example is um, when you have default argument va- values in Python uh-huh. functions, basically you have to be really careful not to have something that can be modified because it sticks around. Like when I say, "Oh, this function takes a default argument and the default is a list," mm-hmm. right? That list sort of hangs around with the function, and people are always shocked by this. So, like, the story I tell is, uh, I, I tell them that in Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live many years ago, they announced that in the city of New York, a man is mugged every 10 seconds. We have found that one man, right? And this guy <laughs> is dragged out every 10 seconds. Oh, no, not again. <laughs> and, and the moment you hear that analogy, you're like, oh, I misunderstood what they meant. It was sort of ambiguous. And in the same way I misunderstood what Python was thinking, it was ambiguous to me, but it was not ambiguous to the language. Uh-huh. That's great. All right, your turn. By incidentally, that's one of the things I'm trying to get better at in my email marketing, which mm-hmm. I don't really think of as, you know, super heavy duty training, but I'm always trying to provide some kind of value, some kind of, you know, way of thinking about something or some new insight. And, and I think stories are a great way to do that. I'm just scratching the surface of, of that. That that's like my my father's a rabbi, uh-huh. and so he gives like sermons all the time. Yeah. And his big thing is stories, and I see like that. I, I got that directly from him. It's it's yeah. We're kind of hardwired that way, aren't we? We're yes. meaning people. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I always felt was critical was to explain something at a conceptual level before I got into a bunch of details about it, which I think is exactly what you're doing with your story. You, you know, you're you're setting it up with a story is you're kind of creating a like a conceptual framework or a container. I used to think of it like like mental hooks. Like you have to have a hook in your mind to hang all the details on. Otherwise, the details become kind of confusing noise, I think, mm-hmm. from the perspective of trying to help somebody understand something new. So I would always, you know, whenever I was introducing some new module of content or, or what have you, I would always start with a conceptual kind of preamble. And I know that's very hand-wavy. I, I guess the best thing I can do is reference back to that analogy I was so proud of. You know, an apartment building address is like an IP address, and then the apartment number is like a port number. And you have to have both those pieces of information to deliver mail to someone in the apartment, just like, you know, a packet can't get to where it needs to go without both a, an IP address and a port number. So I, I would try to find ways like that to sort of, in one story or one concept, convey the broad idea of what it was. And then we could drill into details, like how the IP address is constructed and, you know, the range of port numbers that's used for server-side stuff versus client-side stuff, et cetera. 
I felt like if I started with those details, it just would, you know, not go over people's head. They just wouldn't have any context for it. Right. So, um, I don't know. I guess I've become kind of rigid about that. Like if someone starts explaining something from the perspective of the details, I, I get frustrated like instantly. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? You're doing this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you probably have to sort of see where you're going also. Like the details are useful, but also I, I'm going to guess most people are not going to remember most details. Like I'm okay with the fact that some large proportion of what I say in my courses, people just never remember. And it's just human nature. It's not, it's not me. It's not them. And so if you have those broad strokes, then even if they forget the details, then they can at least sort of reference it somewhere in their memory or they'll know what direction to look in. Right. Here's another thing I think that's critical. Adult learners need to understand why you are spending more than a millisecond of their life on anything. <laughs> like they, they're very, yes. um, what's the word, you know, just kind of utilitarian in their approach to acquiring information because here in the U.S. anyway, we've all been through a, a public school system that doesn't do a particularly great job of this. Um, and so as adults, we're like, look, you know, I spent X years of my life doing that. You need to explain why I need to know this. Otherwise, it's it's probably not going to I'm not going to retain it or do the work that's necessary to retain it. So why is why is this important? A lot of people had such bad experiences with school and they, they don't want school. <laughs> Right. In fact, my, my kids said to me, it was probably like two, three years ago. So how much do you yell at the participants in your classes? <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's a, and, and they were shocked that I don't yell at them. They were shocked wow. that people can like get up and go to the bathroom whenever they want. Now, obviously, like to tell adults you're not allowed to get up is not going to gonna go, go over well. Yeah. But people have such rigid, terrible uh, thoughts about how school works. And right, I want people to be there because they want to be there and I want them to be interested. So how, what's the ratio? Is there some ideal ratio between, in a live class, it would be lecture, but maybe in an online course, it would be, you know, pre-recorded videos or, or text content or something like that. Like what's the, the ideal ratio between that stuff and something where you have to apply it and, and work independently and do it on your own? In a Microsoft learning class, that would be lab time where they have these, you know, pre-written out instructions that you follow on your own to better retain the information and to practice problem solving and so forth. What do you think, Ruben? What's the ratio there? So I'll actually challenge part of what you just said, which is working on your own. Okay. So I strongly encourage people in my courses to work in pairs on ah, their uh, assignments. Got it. And almost no one does this. Wait, 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 what? They, so they, they'd say, you, you tell them to do it, and they're like, uh, no thanks? I, I, say, I say to them, basically, I really think you should do this. Okay. People who do this learn more and get uh, more out of the course. Uh-huh. But, and I say, but I'm not going to force you. I just think it's a really smart idea, whether you are experienced or inexperienced, and whoever the person is with whom, whom you hook up, and programmers who have done pair programming recognize this as a, a marvelous thing. Mm -hmm. But even in the education biz, like it's known that working in pairs, because you have to communicate and so you have to express the ideas, so you have to engage in what's, what's known uh, as metacognition. You're right. thinking about what you're thinking. Right. And that triggers a ton of uh, educational work. And working with someone else, there's a ton of educational theory about working with someone else. And I see it. Like I see when people work in pairs, they get it better. They get frustrated. Right, and they get frustrated with the other person. They get frustrated with themselves, but they they tend to learn more and more deeply. 
Really? I, I, I don't disbelieve this one bit. It's just it's the first time I'm hearing it, and so I'm fascinated. And, and it's, I think, in many ways, the fault of schools mm-hmm. that assume everyone should work on their own on most projects mm-hmm. and, like, don't cheat, don't copy. It's considered to be not the norm. I have a mentoring program where I help people identify a good market position, validate it, and then do the marketing work they need to get that marketing position to kind of own it. And at first it was it was something where I felt like I was kind of not embarrassed, but just sort of felt like it was a drawback that it was a group thing. And it is a group thing. I've come to see that that group thing is very good because people see other perspectives on the same thing they're dealing with. They see other people going through the same process and finding it challenging. And all that is really positive from a learning perspective, I think. I mean, I'm I'm right there with you that I'm just not a big team player myself in my own like life and business. So I'm not naturally inclined to like pull somebody alongside me and work through a problem together. But I, I sure do see the advantages of it. Now, to answer your actual question, I, the number I usually throw out at people is about 30%, 30% lab work exercises. Okay. And it probably depends on the day. You know, it probably depends on the group. It depends on the course. But that's probably not a bad ballpark. I'm, I'm guessing, depending on the course, it's somewhere between 20 and 40%. Okay. And someone actually came up to me after a recent course. So that was actually like a, what was the course in? I don't remember. I think it was in like regular expressions. And he had been in a few of my other courses before. And and by the way, one of the nice things about doing courses at the same company is you develop these groupies. Like it's an amazing feeling where I'm in the cafeteria and someone comes up and says, oh, like what's the next thing you're teaching that I have not taken? <laughs> Learning and I'm like, groupies. Oh, it's, it's great. It's, it's great. So, so he said to me, listen, this is what you need. Like I took your basic Python course. It was fine. I took your advanced course. And the advanced courses always have issues. Uh, we talk about that a little bit. But he said, what I really need is a day of just like exercises, like like almost a mini hackathon wow. where we come in in the morning and we have a clear thing we have to do and like 100% exercises or 90% exercises for the day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that is a fantastic idea. And so I haven't tried that yet. I haven't even had time to propose it yet because I'm so busy. Oops. But um, uh, but I'm definitely thinking of doing that. And I'm even thinking of doing it at different levels, like you know, the intro hackathon and the advanced hackathon, as it were. Yeah, right. So you mentioned issues with the advanced level courses. What were you hinting at there? So so it's very easy to offer an intro course mm-hmm. because the assumption in an intro course is you know nothing. Ah. Right? Where you can say you must come in with uh, programming experience. And even mm-hmm. that, like, we've had some issues, but like, not too many. You sort of know what you're getting there. Mm-hmm. With an advanced course, even if you say in the syllabus or the like the, the, yeah, the outline. So what I typically say in my advanced Python course is you must have been using Python for the last six months on an almost daily basis. And the number of people who actually fit that criterion is, is approaching zero. Right. What you have is someone who took the basic course a year ago and they want to take the next one. Or even better, someone who says, I'm really good at programming so I can pick up the advanced stuff. Oh, I see. So what happens is, and it's even worse, like, <laughs> it's even worse when I've been in abroad a few times, like both uh-huh. in China and in Romania when I taught there, two-thirds of the course said, like, when I, I always go around, and this uh-huh. is what we talked about also, like, how to start the class, but I would say, like, what's your background? And two-thirds of them say, I'm here because I've heard Python is a great language. I'm thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> right? This is <laughs> a course. 
but this happens so often. I'm just sort of used to it now. The problem is you have a handful of people who show up who are advanced and are infuriated that basically I have to ratchet it down and not be as advanced because what am I supposed to do? And it's an impossible situation to be in. And I've tried to work with companies to avoid these issues and I still haven't managed to, to, to solve it completely. Yeah, that makes sense. You'd feel like a monster if you're like, I, I need to ask you to leave <laughs> to anybody, right? Right, and, and they've paid for it, right? They, their division has paid for it. Their boss has paid for it. Yeah. And they, they are there. And to basically say to them, either, like, like basically, I, I can't say no to either group. So I sort of dance between the raindrops. I had that actually in my advanced Python course, I think it was about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. There were seven participants, three who had never touched Python before or done it in years ago, three who did use it every day and were very advanced and one who had never used it before and kept belittling the fact that I was going so slowly. Mm. <laughs> so, oh, that's funny. That was, that was a fun class. Let me tell you. <laughs> so <laughs> how do you get your first training gig? If you're going to come at this from the perspective of, I'm going to be like a, a contract trainer. Like I, I have some expertise. I think I'm good enough to teach a class on, you know, whatever Python basics or Ruby basics or what have you. How do you get your first gig working for a company? I would say two different ways to approach this. One is one is sort of the easier, faster way, which is go to a training company. Right? Yeah. Training is in such demand. If mm-hmm. if you are not interested in dealing with the business side of things, if you're not interested in like building up your portfolio or like and it takes time, it'll probably take many months to be able to get into a company. And if you say, I just want money <laughs> and I want to try this out, mm-hmm. go to a training company. They're all desperate for high quality people. Mm-hmm. They'll probably have you do a screen test of some sort, either mm-hmm. in person or online. Yeah. And if they like you, bam, you're in. And then they'll start calling you and saying, how soon can you teach X, Y, Z? Oh, wow. So you don't have to have any kind of credentials or. They, you know, they might like it, but if, if you can convince them that uh-huh. you've, you know, that you know your stuff, uh-huh. Um, either in the screen test or from your blog or from other talks you've given. Like if, okay. if you sort of, if they, if they're convinced that you know what you're doing, then sure, go for it. And there's yeah. no small number of such training companies available. Okay. The downside of doing that is they take the lion's share of the money and you sign a non-compete clause almost always. Uh, how enforceable is that is an open question. Are those usually open-ended like two years after we're done with you? You s- that's when the non-compete ends or it depends on the company. Okay. Okay. In my case, the training company that I work with here in Israel went through some mergers Uh and they never signed me on anything. So when I told them I'm leaving, they said, so tell us what did we sign you on in terms of non-compete? I said, nothing. And the phone sort of went silent for a few moments. (laughs) Uh (laughs) And they said, Oh, and they realized what that meant. But even if they had, Someone told me that their non-compete says you will not work for another training company. It never dawns on them that you might do it individually. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's like that's the, the fast track route. And okay. by the way, if you're in like the U.S., which has a ton of companies, then you might say, you know what? I'm willing to do that. I'm willing even to not compete with my old employer, get some experience training for the first year or two, and then hang out my own shingle. Yeah, I just want to encourage people, you should push back on that crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I also, like, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. I think it's ridiculous. And it, like, if they're treating you well and if they're paying you well, then they should have nothing to worry about. And, and I can see a non-compete that's limited to the time that you're act- actively working for them. That right. might be acceptable, and that's what you should push back to if it's one that's like, you know, X years after your employment, you can't do any training for anybody. That is... That's outrageous. 
I agree. I've never quite understood the even the morality of doing that, let alone the legality. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, onwards. So, 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 and the other way to do it is to let's assume you want to do it at companies. Start approaching them, and and again, there's sort of two ways to do it. One is to contact their training manager, and the training manager is your go-to person. They're, they're basically your client. They are the person you have to satisfy. If the training mm-hmm. manager is happy, regardless of how the course went, mm-hmm. right? The course would have gone could have gone great. The course could have gone terribly. If the training manager is happy, you will be invited back. Yeah. So one way is to call them up and say, "Listen," um, and Jonathan actually suggested this a, a number of months ago. Call them up even when you're sort of in the beginning stages and say, I'm putting together a course in such and such. I'd like to get your feedback on it um, so that I can make it really appropriate for your needs. Now, the training manager is never a technical person, so they might need to have a conference call and bring in someone else. They might forward you to someone else. Uh, So it's often a three-way conversation until you sort of decide that this will happen. But the other way is sort of through the back door, where if you give talks at conferences, if you get talks at meetups, if you blog a lot, if you're well-known in your area then what you can do is have one of the engineers contact you or you contact one of the engineers and they then go to the training manager and say, wow, we need training in blah, blah, blah technology. And Joe Schmo is an expert in blah, blah, blah. Can you contact them and have them come in and do training? Oh, that's awesome. And so you sort of play both sides of it, trying to get people interested in what you're doing. And eventually, and, and as you build up a reputation, both in training in general and like for just being the go-to person in that subject, for training that subject. Because here's the other thing. There are definitely people who know these technologies way better than I do, even in Israel. And there are probably people who teach it better than I do mm-hmm. in Israel. Mm-hmm. But are they available during the day? No, they are not. And so by making yourself available, you're already head and shoulders ahead of the, your potential competition who has full-time jobs. Interesting. How do you price training services? Are they done on a day rate, a week rate, per student, something else? Uh, yes. So, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> yeah, all the above. Take what you can get. So the two basic models for in-house training mm-hmm. are per day and per student. Okay. And so per day, you just multiply it out. So like, I mean, when I do a course for, you know, Cisco, Apple, SanDisk, whatever it is, I say, okay, it's a four-day course, thus it will cost blah. So they're actually seeing a package price, right? right? But I'm pricing it per day. Right. I do that in Israel and in Europe and even in China. I have not yet. I, the, the only training I did in the U.S. or pricing in the U.S. it didn't work out recently. But there, I was encouraged to do a per student rate huh. and to basically say, you know, it's X per person per day. Mm-hmm. And then again, it becomes a package price. But they they see that as okay, you know, and, and they always want to know. And it's super important to say what is the maximum maximum number of students, right? Maximum number of students, right? Okay, um, which is typically for me twenty or even a little less if I can get away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you're, if you're pricing per student, 20 is probably pretty good. If you're yeah. pricing per day, then 16 is probably better, 15, 16. Okay. Then they sort of scramble a little bit, and every company has its own internal mechanism for who has to pay, who has to get approval. So in some companies, like in all companies, they're all working on the profit center model now. Mm-hmm. So like your boss has a training budget, or you personally have a training budget assigned to you if you're an employee there. Mm-hmm. And so what will happen is you give this proposal to the training manager with a syllabus, and they then sort of market around internally, sometimes electronically, sometimes in person, sometimes just sending email. But the pricing basically works on that basis. Okay. If you need to travel, at least some companies sort of add a, a fixed budget on top of that, and some of them will just sort of let you invoice them for it. So you tend to not wrap in travel expenses with the the cost of the training, or, or you do? So when I went to Europe uh, about a month or two ago, 
that was for Cisco, and they basically have a very standard rate. If your training is X days long, you get Y amount of money. Okay. And that's just on top of whatever you charge for the training. Yeah. And you can then, as I talked to my wife about, you know, if I could swim there and pitch a tent, I get to pocket all the money. Right. And if I, you know, get a gold-plated, uh, whatever, you know, Learjet, then I'm out. But yeah. that's that's up to me. Okay. So, sort of the per diem model. Yeah. When I go to China, they actually pay for my travel and hotel. Mm-hmm. So they get more say in terms of how I fly and when and, and so forth. Got it. But I don't charge them on top of that for it. Got it. Okay. Wow. Okay. So what, I mean, what have we not touched on? What's going to be like a surprise for someone who has never done this, is interested in getting into it? What's going to surprise them? Or what are some sort of pro tips that you've picked up along the way? Oh, so here's here's one big thing that's taken me years to figure out that I'm still getting better at. Uh-huh. Don't teach too much. Like, it's so tempting to say, like, and I did this now. I, I was telling you before we start recording, I just finished this four-day PostgreSQL course. And I think it was good, but it could have been better, and it would have been better if I taught less. That is, say, fewer topics. Because um, there's, there's this tendency to say, wow, they want a course in subject X. I'm going to just do a brain dump and teach them everything I know on subject X. Right. You think that and, I can speak to this personally. You think the value get, gets higher and higher the more content you can dump in there, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. I even say this explicitly to my students. Every year, I reduce the content in every one of my courses, and I increase the number of exercises, and satisfaction goes up. Okay. that's. I think that's huge. Because that, that would apply probably both to online courses and, you know, in-person training. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because I, I can tell you as someone who is sort of shifting his business more and more to providing valuable content to people and providing, you know, support in various ways that look a lot like training, there's a sort of anxiety of like, oh, gosh, is it worth the price? Maybe I should add more stuff to increase right. the value. That's exactly right. So you're saying doing that does not increase satisfaction or makes for worse student results? What, what's the problem with dumping in more content? First of all, you just can't, you, you find, you everything is sort of infinitely deep. Every subject, more yeah. or less, you want to teach. Okay. And so it's better to, I, I think, get more depth, get more experience, get more exercises and labs in there mm-hmm. on fewer subjects than to throw the kitchen sink at them mm-hmm. and then come away and say, yeah, but do I really remember it well? Right, right, retention. Is, yeah, is an yeah. issue when you when you're covering a lot of content at high speed, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I sometimes make the joke like if we're coming close to the end of the day, and uh, you know, I see I have a lot of content still to go through. I say to people, "That's okay. I'll just talk faster." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and sort of people's eyes bug out of their heads a little bit, uh, especially if I'm not in an English speaking country. Uh, we're not speaking their native language. <laughs> people are like, "Oh no, oh no!" But we all know. It just can't, it can't work that way. Right, because this is something that I, I guess I would call a pro tip. Adult learners, you've got to deal with their mind, but you also have to deal with their ego, <laughs> which is they don't want to be perceived as their co- by their coworkers as, like, slow or, oh, this guy just doesn't get it or, you know, she doesn't she's, – she's not as good as whatever, right? So that's right. an additional factor when you get a group of adults together – Half of their energy is going to protecting their other people's perception of them. Right. So I, I, I mean, my intro Python course, which I alluded to earlier, well, it's basic and anyone can come. I discovered actually that was not the case. I mm-hmm. discovered that people who did not have a programming background were really, as I got deeper 
<laughs> and as I sort of added more labs and harder content to less stuff, to mm-hmm. less breath, mm-hmm. the people who had no programming background were really getting stuck. Right. So I made a new course, which was Python for non-programmers. Definitely one of, I think, one of my most inspired upsells ever. Because <laughs> basically, no one comes to these big companies and offers programming courses to non-programmers. Oh, right? that's, ge- that's genius. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, how did no one think of this before? Right. Um, the thing is, right, and, and I, I said explicitly at the beginning of the course, I just taught like a few weeks ago, and I said, look, if you were embarrassed, and there were a few people who had tried my regular intro course and it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, like they, they just pulled out after a day or two saying, forget it. So I said to them, this is your chance to ask tons of questions and not be embarrassed because you're among your peers and no one here knows how it works. Oh, and if great. it's too fast, tell me. And if it's not obvious, tell me. And several point, at several points, it was clear I was just sort of going way too fast for them. Yeah. But they stopped me. Thankfully, it's an Israeli group which has no problems with doing that. Yeah. Um, and, and they pulled me back and they stopped me and we dwelled on things and it was great for everyone. Yeah. That's awesome. So that seems like a pro tip is just to, again, you, you sort of see all the disparities between professional learning where you don't get paid if you don't perform and, or I mean, professional training where you, you don't get paid or you don't get invited back if you don't perform. You see the differences between that and uh, a more institutional form of learning where, you know, the teacher has a job no matter what, right? So <laughs> that's right. You're saying a sort of additional sensitivity to where the students are and their needs is is really going to go a long way. I mean, right. it's what we say in the world of consulting. If you're not listening twice as much as you're talking, there's there's a problem. <laughs> right, and these these uh, questionnaires after the surveys after the courses are invaluable because sometimes they'll put things there that they wouldn't say to you in person. Ah, um, right, and so like both good and bad. So one of the things that like you know people keep saying is you know, not to toot my own heart too much, but like, oh, you know, Reuven always treats our questions seriously and mm-hmm. is very like, you know, um, sympathetic and patient in answering mm-hmm. them. And so that's something that really, and I see that in every course just about someone somewhere mentions that. So that's really striking a chord with them. Like they feel, okay, I'm not being made to feel stupid. I'm being treated like an adult who just wants to learn and doesn't get it. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, adults are more fragile, I think, than young children when it comes to that, like to the, to the ego part of it. But that's so important. I'm curious if you've had problem students ever that you have to deal with. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's, I, I've had problem students in, in various ways. Sometimes it's just like they're in the wrong class, especially uh-huh. like they're just not up to speed to do, especially the advanced things. And they pull everyone back mm-hmm. and they are, maybe this is like a programmer thing. Like they don't, see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so the, the, it's, it's, that's difficult. And that's, that's, there's basically no way to solve that problem. Hmm. I, I had this one guy who came into my class. I think it was also like intro Python. And I basically opened the class. Like I said, hi, you know, welcome to intro Python. My name is Reuven. And the guy's response already to that was, what is this crap? <laughs> what is this language? Why aren't we learning a real language like C sharp? Oh, so he had like a bad attitude about the whole premise of the of the course. Absolutely. Okay. I was like, why are you here? <laughs> and everyone else, you could see their jaws sort of dropping. And and every other sentence out of his mouth was just, what a joke of a language. And who would use this thing? Yeah. Somehow, somehow, first of all, I, I he had enough of a sense of humor about himself, thankfully, that I was able to use him as a bit of a punching bag. Like, even someone like you 
could appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so like, at least the rest, I figured at least I'll get a few laughs out of the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. He actually sent me an email after the course and said, I want to thank you for the course. Python is so cool. I'm teaching it to my daughter based on your materials. Wow. I was like, wow. Doesn't <laughs> that, that feel that. great when you convert someone from, from that sort of hostile position to being a, a champion of what it is you're doing? Absolutely. But most of the time it's just people. Oh, here, here's, another, here's another fun one. This extremely nice guy who's taken several of my classes. Really good guy. He has the same MO in every class. He shows up for maybe, maybe a quarter of it, mm-hmm. runs out to meetings, runs out to do whatever, shows up at five when I finish teaching and says, do you mind? I have a few questions about what you did today. <laughs> <laughs> and then holds me there for like half an hour, an hour with questions that I covered with the rest of the group. And, and part of it is my fear of offending people because then he's going to write in my questionnaire, like the, the feedback, boy, what a jerk. He didn't take the time to answer my questions. Yeah. I was going to say, I, in my experience, I think I've found, I don't know, like three categories. That category of someone who they've paid for the training, so they they feel like that's, that was the work of it. And so attending and participating and sort of having the discipline to block out interruptions from their cell phone or or what have you, that doesn't seem like the work of the class to them. But it is. <laughs> that's That's really the work of it is participating. Yeah. Let's see, like people who challenge your authority who are a little bit hostile is maybe the second category. And then all the funny stories I have are in the third category of people who like have hygiene problems or uh, (laughs) like when I was working for New Horizons, they had a contract with the state of Tennessee. So they would get a lot of state workers. And that's where all the I mean, this is not hopefully going to be received as a slur against all state workers. It's not meant that way. But that's that's where all the weirdos came from. The most awkward conversation I ever had to have with a student was when somebody else complained about this guy passing gas in class, you know, just farting in the classroom. It was uh, that that goes down in in the record as the most awkward conversation I've ever had to have with someone who was was in one of my classes. But, you know, you just don't get a lot. I I found with with adult learners there, I mean, the kind of discipline problems you would have teaching high school students just don't exist at that level. It's sort of a different category of problems and they're much more easily mitigated if you set expectations properly and, you know, just kind of, I mean, this probably be a whole nother hour conversation of like, how do you start a course or a class that's an in-person training class? And if you just do the expectation setting very clearly, uh, very systematically up front at the beginning of every class, a lot of those problems just don't, don't happen, right? If you yeah. tell, if you tell people how to ask questions, for instance, here's how you ask questions in this class. Like that, I think that would take care of half of the potential problems. I never thought of that. Yeah, it probably I depends mean, on the culture. I mean, some cultures are more assertive, as as you pointed out. Right. Like it's actually, I enjoy, I really enjoy teaching in Israel because people have no hesitation about asking questions or saying yeah. what they think or challenging authority. Right. And, and I'm okay with that. Like, I think if someone from the U S were to come here and teach, they'd be a little like <laughs> taking it back. Yeah. Like, Oh my God, these people have no deference. And yeah. and yeah, that's sort of the whole country was founded on that to some degree. Yeah. But, but then like sort of the opposite is the case that when I go to China, where in Chinese schools, if you ask questions, something is terribly wrong with you because you're challenged. Like, like you should just, understand it from what the teacher says. So I really actively try to encourage them to ask questions and participate. And there are usually a handful of people who sort of go along with that and they drag the rest of the group with them. 
Yeah, and and it's interesting. You see a sort of a microcosm of that if if you're training because different companies have different cultures, right? There's probably some yes. training clients you have where it's totally normal for people to answer their cell phone in the class and then walk out. And in other companies, that would be really rude, right? Right. And then there, then there are people who think that we don't hear them on their phones in the back row. <laughs> right. Like somehow right. physics doesn't apply to them. <laughs> right. It was just this guy. I, I remember I was teaching a few weeks ago and I could have sworn I heard someone on their phone and I was looking around, I didn't see them. And I saw them, they had like ducked under the desk. <laughs> and I said, you know, it really does not bother me if you go out to talk on your phone, but you're really interrupting things here. Yeah. And, and the guy was so embarrassed, but right, what was he thinking? <laughs> and sometimes like that is the, like with kids, th they're exposed to that all the time. They're called out in front of their peers by the teacher. But you do that with mm -hmm. an adult. That's like, that's the, uh, that's the nuclear option is to call somebody out in, in front of the class and, and make an example of them. You only, I mean, I'm telling you as someone who's done that only once or twice, that's, that is the nuclear option. <laughs> they do not appreciate it. It's incredibly embarrassing to do that. Uh, and sometimes warranted, but very rarely warranted. You, you generally want to like kind of have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone who's being disruptive. But right. yeah, it's like, you know, the, the square law <laughs> rule of, of attenuating sound applies to you just like it does to everybody else. <laughs> Need a bigger room. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just, just like you, you touched on sort of opening, opening chords. I, I just want to sort of say sort of how I wrap, sort of wrap things around things mm -hmm. like both the beginning and the end. And I've sort of gotten better at this just in the last few months, I think. So first of all, I try to send an email a few days in advance to all the participants, welcoming them, giving them the slides in PDF. I thought I had to print them out. That turned out to be unnecessary from anyone's perspective um, and expensive for me and the logistical going to the printer and so forth. Right. So I just email people the PDFs of my, my lecture notes and a few additional things. And I say, I really hope I'm looking forward to having you here. And I really encourage participation. I hope you'll come with a lot of questions. Like set the stage for that. When we open the course in person, I always go around and get everyone's name. And I hope to remember them. I usually remember like, I don't know, a good 20%. Especially, do you have them have a little name card on their desk? I wish I remembered to do that more. Okay. Um, okay. I should. I, in, fact, in fact, thank you for reminding me. I want to do that. Uh, I'll be in Shanghai next week. I really mm -hmm. should do it then also. Yeah, when yeah. I do that, it's great because then I can. I, I have a more of a connection. Yeah. And I always ask, like, why are you here? And I even joke sometimes, like, besides the boss sending you here. <laughs> right. Um, like, but what languages do you know? What technologies? How are you going to use this? And that allows me to refer back to it during right. the course. Like, oh, you used to use Perl, so you got to watch out here because it's different. Right. And then I also open up by saying, look, here's roughly the schedule. Um, we're going to start at this hour, end at that hour, take lunch here. At the end of each day, I will email you a zip file with all of my demos, with all the slides, with the updates. So, like, you don't have to. People like to take pictures of me with my slides. Um, you know, people sometimes are madly copying things down. And I say, you don't have to do that. Right. I'm going to send you everything. You can just concentrate. Nice. And after the course is done, then I send them a summary. Uh, in the case of courses that have an online survey, I say, I, I remind them to do the survey. I try to send them the link. I sometimes like point them to some of the other things I do. I've gotten a little pushback on that. Like, yes, I might be offering a coupon to people in my class, but it's seen as a little crass by a few people that like, I'm, I just paid, they just paid for my course and now I'm hawking my book. Mm -hmm. So I stopped doing that. Yeah. And yeah. And so like, they hear from me before, during, and after, and I then have their email address. I can connect them on LinkedIn, so which people almost always accept. So they see the additional updates from me and sometimes even join my mailing list. Nice. That's awesome. <clears throat>
I really hope that people who listeners who've been you know wondering if if training is for them are, are sort of more in, enlightened about the ins and outs of it and and feeling comfortable about trying it out. I, I will say maybe a little bit by way of closing that I, I don't know of a better I do not know of a better way to learn a subject than to try to teach it to someone else. Oh, one hundred percent. You will you will understand the gaps in your own knowledge, and you will have. Uh, one of the best incentives I've ever found to fill those gaps, which is, uh, you know, the the embarrassment of not being able to explain something. <laughs> it's funny that so I was at a meeting, I guess it was close to a year ago, of a bunch of lecturers, and someone said, I'm sure he didn't come up with it himself, but he said there are two. Yeah, he tells his students, and I've used this sometimes. There are two kinds of questions you can ask: good questions and great questions. Good questions, you don't know the answer. Great questions, I don't know the answer, and so. I often in my courses, I'll say, I'm going to write that down and I'm going to get back to you with an answer. And sometimes it's my homework for the next day. And sometimes I email it to them a week or two after class. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope they don't think that I'm pandering to them because I, I really enjoy finding the answers to these questions. And they, they often inspire me to give, you know, full segments or modules in, in my talks or in my, my courses. You know, so those innocent questions can lead to great learning on my part and then great learning on other people's parts too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember the one or two times when I tried to sort of BS my way into an answer to a question that I, I really didn't know the answer to, and it was it was awful. So I learned to never do that. I mean, uh, I know Jonathan has said this before, and I agree. If you don't know the answer to a question, even if you're the guy they paid $50,000 to do the training, you say, I don't know, <laughs> but if you'd like, I'll find out for you. Right. People appreciate that. They appreciate yeah. the honesty. And yeah. they realize you can't possibly know everything. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, as I, as I mentioned before, as probably obvious, just in, if, if only through my enthusiasm, moving into doing training has been the best career move I ever, ever, ever could have made in terms of satisfaction, in terms of pipeline, and in terms of payment. I mean, I, I think I might mentioned uh, previously on the podcast, like I, I bumped into this friend of mine on the train a number of months ago. And he mentioned what I'm what I'm up to. I said, yeah, I'm doing mostly training now. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, that's great. It's just too bad it doesn't pay as well as programming. <laughs> and I didn't have the heart to tell him it pays way better than programming. Because yeah. basically, if you are doing development work, and there are people who have figured out how to market themselves doing high-powered development work for lots of money, mm-hmm. but they see you as a programmer in many ways. But if you're doing training, you're working with budgets that have been pre-allocated, with people who are used to working for these vendors, you're competing with the other trainers and with like, <laughs> you're being with other trainers in your field um, and with just what the market demand is for the technology you're selling. And, and people are willing to pay, companies are willing to pay, especially in the US and Europe, crazy amounts of money. Yeah, yeah you know, you, you just reminded me that I, I could probably count at least one handful of, uh, of clients that I've had personally who list investing in their people as a competitive advantage of their business. And if you can connect your services with something that a business perceives as a competitive advantage, you're in a different category of uh, business, you know, need than someone who perceives, well, we got to have somebody to maintain this crappy old system and we're going to shop for the lowest price we can because we don't perceive that as a competitive advantage. So not every company sees training that way, but a number of them do. And uh, and I think that's that's why you're seeing that, Reuven, seeing, you know, healthy, healthy budgets. Right. I'll even connect the dots on a few of these things here. So I, I mentioned that I did a data science course about a month ago. 
So that came from talking to, it, that came from my intro to the course, right? And so I would go around and ask people what they're doing. And in every one of my Python courses, there would be a handful of people who said, yeah, I'm using this for data analytics and data science. And I sort of thought about that. And I realized, you know, if every course someone's doing data science, I should probably do a separate data science course. So I, I basically pitched it to, to a company and they said, yeah, that sounds great. And I happened to mention the next day, like I was doing a different course at that company. And I mentioned, oh, yeah, I've got this new course I'm going to be doing in a few months, the one I did last month, in data science. And they said, how did you know? I said, know what? And they said, our CEO just said that everyone in the company needs to learn data science. <laughs> and so basically, by having my ear to the ground and talking to people and being just slightly ahead of the pack, I just got email from their training manager saying, how many data science courses can you propose between now and the end of the year? I am happy to make you like our chief data science trainer. Wow. Like, That's oh, right, amazing. Right. So basically I need to hit the next one out of the park, yeah. but it's all these things that you could chalk up to coincidence, but it's just talking to people, hearing what they have to say and playing the game in just the right way. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. I feel like the message to someone who is a freelancer who has some expertise that they think is valuable, but does not want to do corporate training is you should know that there's a very nice virtuous cycle when you become the provider of a training. The same thing when you, you know, self-publish a really good book. It's from a marketing perspective, it's wonderful. And so, it, I mean, I think it's similar to what we've been talking about here. There's just a really nice sort of virtuous cycle of, oh, this person has created the course on X. Um, you know, like an acquaintance of mine, Ari, Ari Lamstein is, has got a course on R, on doing um, – you know, like data analysis with R. And it's the same thing. He gets consulting work because he's the person who put together a course on this. No one anointed him the one guy who needs to put together a course on this. He just built up some expertise, did it. And it's, you know, it's kind of created opportunity outside the world of training. So I, I guess the message there is you don't have to become a full-time trainer to benefit from training. I think it can be just a wonderful complement to a freelancing or consulting business. Absolutely. That's one of the nice things. Also, you can do as much or as little as you want. Can I ask, have you gotten offers to do programming work on the back of training engagements or, or do you kind of try to keep those separate now? Rarely. And, okay. and, and it's funny because for a long time I was shocked. Like, why, why are they not asking me? Mm -hmm. And a few times, like a few times, even in a, a short period, people came up to me after class and would say, so tell me, do you also do development work? Mm -hmm. I'd be like, yeah, I mentioned that in my introduction about myself. But you, if, if you're interested in using one to sort of feed the other, mm -hmm. you should be really clear about it. Like you okay. should say, and I even would sometimes say this at the end of the course, by the way, I do development work. It never actually led to anything. But I think it's just the nature of the companies that I was working with that they're not interested in hiring uh, outside developers. Yeah. But but you def I, I, I have to assume that most places, most people could figure out a way to do that. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, we should probably, uh, this is, this is fun and great and hopefully interesting. Um, but I'm just looking at the time. We should probably wrap this up at some point. Do you have any right. more, fine, any more? fine. <laughs> yeah, next week. Don't worry. Do you have any more ideas, closing thoughts about this? If you are introverted, if you're shy, if you're terrified by the idea of speaking in front of a group, there's so many ways you can basically take what we've talked about here, which is training, which has, you know, in, inherently as a one-to-many revenue model, because uh, anything else would basically be coaching or mm -hmm. mentoring. So 
it's just very attractive from that business perspective. But maybe you're sort of held back by thinking, well, you know, I, I'm not good in front of a group. I, I can't hold the interest of a group for a long period of time. There's other ways to do it. It doesn't have to be you teach a five-day class that goes from, you know, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. every one of those five days. There are other ways to do it, and I just would encourage people to think, hmm, think about it from a business perspective rather than, you know, this is hard and I've never done it before and I don't want to try it. I guess that, that would be my closing thought is just think about ways this could benefit your business. It's it's a really, really powerful way to do a number of really great things. And, and maybe it's for you. Maybe it's not, but, and that's fine, but maybe it is. Yeah. It's worth, it's worth giving it a shot somehow, even if it's just a, a talk at a conference or a local meetup, just to, you know, test the waters, see how you like it, see how others like it. Yeah. All right. Wow. Phil, do you got any picks for this week? I have a pick. I am at that um, wonderful, somewhat costly moment where moving from a uh, sole proprietor to a S-corp <laughs> seems to make sense for my business. So I'm doing that and I'm using a service called LegalZoom to do so. You just pay them some money and they file documents for you. And it's basically a web interface, <laughs> sort of like a, an API between me, a person who doesn't really want to pay a lawyer to do this for me, <laughs> and the uh, state of California and the IRS who need paperwork filed. So it's uh, there are cheaper ways, I'm sure, to do it. You could DIY something like this. But so far, I've been really pleased with their service. Great communication. Stuff seems to be happening quickly. And uh, so it seems pick-worthy to mention a legal Zoom for things like incorporation, they, they do some other stuff too, which I'm, is not top of mind for me right now. But uh, other things maybe do not require an attorney. Worth checking out, uh, LegalZoom. Great. And I guess I've also got uh, one pick. Um, we went to Ikea, I guess it was about two months ago or so, to get some things for my kids. And my, my uh, 13-year-old daughter was with me. And we saw a, a desk there. And I'd been talking about getting a new desk. I was honestly using this card table for quite some time. Huh. And she said, and, and she said, look, there's a desk. And you'd even been talking about getting a standing desk. Why don't you get this? And I got it. I wish I could remember the name of it. I'll try to look it up. Um, it's like something with a K and the rest is in Swedish. Uh, <laughs> I guess K is in Swedish too, right? Yeah. Anyway, I have been extremely, extremely pleased with it. I, I'll admit that about maybe a third of the time I actually sit at it instead of stand at it. So I probably need a bar stool or something. But Standing at the desk, it's it's much more relaxing and fun than I ever expected. So I, it's it's definitely worth giving it a shot, and not as weird as I as I would have thought. Nice. Anyway, so that is it, Phil. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Likewise. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we will be back next week on the Freelancer Show. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.